everyone, and welcome to the third in this special five-part series of podcasts entitled Beethoven Innovator, which are all part of the Beethoven 250 Celebration Festival at the University of Plymouth. I'm your host, James Daybell, Professor of Early Modern British History at Plymouth, and I'm going to be in conversation with my colleague, pianist Robert Taub, Music Director of the Arts Institute at the University. With his performances and recordings of the Beethoven piano sonatas and his book about them, along with ongoing research into Beethoven's creative processes, Bob is a leading expert on Beethoven. So, Bob, hello. It's great to be with you, James. And how are you doing? How are you doing? Uh, we're, we're three into this. How's it going? I'm well, and this is an enormous amount of fun. It's, it's so wonderful to be able to speak with you and, and everyone about Beethoven. There's always something new to think about, always something new to hear, always something new to experience. Excellent. So in this series of podcasts, we've been exploring Beethoven as a musical innovator. We've been taking a fresh look at musical topics, including how we perceive music, how our range of hearing has evolved over time and how and why Beethoven composed. In each episode, we've explored a different musical theme. In our last episode, we looked at the topic of tempo. And this time we'll be exploring the theme of mistakes. So where do we start with thinking about Beethoven and mistakes? Um, surely, surely Beethoven didn't make any mistakes, Bob. Well, he probably did. In fact, he made so many mistakes in his scores that they're difficult to read. If you look at his autograph scores, manuscripts that he wrote out in his own hand and, and sent to publishers, uh, they're a minefield. They, they um, are extremely convoluted. Um, he has crossings out, he has insertions, uh, he has sometimes color-coded insertions. Um, but be that as it may, he was more concerned with mistakes that his publishers made. He sent them challenging uh, manuscripts, and they were expected to uh, read his hand, his musical hand, um, and come out with perfect renditions for the public. So um, with his very, very last piano sonata, the 32nd of 32, which he composed in 1822, five years before his death, you know, and he had traversed this enormous journey creating things that no one had ever done before. Here's a, here's a brief excerpt of, of a letter he wrote to um, the publishing firm of Schlesinger about the sonata Opus 111. He wrote, it is unpleasant for me if my works come out so full of mistakes. The proof copy will be corrected here immediately and returned to you, whereupon you may then circulate the work throughout the world. I must insist that this be done, for if not, it will be your own fault if your edition is pirated. So let's take a step back. Beethoven sent the autograph score, and this is available in facsimile, I have one, of, of Opus 111, um, which is pretty hard to read, but not, not, the, not the worst, to um, two publishing firms, um, the Schlesinger firm in Berlin and one operated by um, another member of the family in Paris. Proofs came back. They were full of mistakes. Beethoven is urging them to correct the mistakes, and he has the threat that if they don't correct the mistakes, there will be a pirated edition of that work. In other words, he's going to circumvent the publisher. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, another pianist friend, composer of his, 
of Beethoven's, that is, Clementi, came out with a pirated edition of the work. And Clementi worked with Beethoven to make sure that it was as accurate as possible. And that Beethoven endorsed that work publicly. He put an ad in the, in the Vienna newspaper saying, do not buy the Schlesinger version, um, but buy the Clementi version. And people listened to him. And, and that's what happened. So mistakes are, you know, they're everywhere, um, but it's how you deal with them that counts. And that's one way that Beethoven dealt with them. I suppose the big question there is, how did these publishers respond to this? What was the nature of Beethoven's relationship with his publishers? It was a fraught relationship that Beethoven had with his publishers. He sent a letter, another letter to another firm, to Breitkopf und Hertel, which is, still exists you know, in, in, in a slightly different form today. They were an august publishing house. And he wrote, failure, 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 du bist selbst ein failure. Uh, mistakes, mistakes, mistakes. You yourselves are a mistake. He was not, you know, pleased with some work that they had done. So, um, you know, it, it's a it's a difficult issue because um, there's no doubt that they had a challenging um, series of 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 uh, elements that they had to deal with with engraving Beethoven's autograph scores, but. You know, they, they had people who were good and they could always ask Beethoven and he was very good about correcting proofs. He wrote, wrote long letters with lists of corrections that needed to be make, made. And so he was therefore furious if a work came out with, a, with his corrections either ignored or not properly, um, properly made uh, to, to his satisfaction. He um, wanted to have a, a complete edition of his works made before... He died. Um, and, you know, that, that leads to a, another issue altogether, which is the relationship between performer and composer. We'll get back to the complete works notion in a moment. Um, let's just say briefly that it was his, his desire was unfulfilled, never happened. But nonetheless, we have certain things at our disposal today that were not um, largely available during the uh, decades um, immediately following Beethoven's death. And let's decide what those things are and describe how we can use them. What we have at our disposal, because of the age of information, we have the ability to look at um, digitized autograph scores that Beethoven wrote, one of Sonata Opus 109, for example, which resides in the Library of Congress. You can go to the Library of Congress site you know, it happens to be in Washington, D.C., but it doesn't matter. And you can download the autograph score of his Piano Sonata Opus 109 and look at it. You'll see a number of things that are interesting, which could be the subject of another discussion another day. But from the, the sort of larger artistic and implied, you know, implied moral point of view, I believe that there's, this is just me speaking personally, I believe that there's an implied moral contract when you um, learn a piece of music or work on a piece of music. First of all, I, and I'll just speak personally for a moment, uh, I learn a piece of music only because it moves me. I will not learn a piece of music that I don't feel is convincing um, because it, I have to communicate or I want to communicate as much as possible about that piece of music to everyone who is available. So. In so learning a piece of music, 
if it really moves you and you really feel compelled to put the time in and make the commitment and everything else to, to internalize a piece of music in that way. You then ask, why do I like it? What is it about it? You can generally answer those questions. And then you can go to another level. This is, becomes more important. That other level is, why did the composer write it? What was the composer, in this case Beethoven, trying to achieve, trying to communicate? Um, and if you begin to understand those larger epistemological questions and can come up with some convincing, coherent, cogent answers, then you're a long way toward understanding the artistic statement that a piece of music is, is making and you know, what it's trying to do in our world. So Beethoven felt very strongly that a piece of music is an organic whole. You cannot take one element and uh, change a piece of music by inserting a note or by changing the tempo or by making something louder when he wanted it soft. It's all part of an architecture. It's part of a structure. And if you change one element, you know, like the genetic code, you, you get a mutation, but it's not the real thing anymore. It's not the same thing anymore. Um, and so, I don't want to go too far with the genetic code analogy because sometimes mutations turn out to be good. Um, but in the, art, in the world of, of musical art, um, the idea is that the art is, can be transcendent and can be communicative in, in, in very uh, convincing ways. So um, when we're looking for an addition to buy, if I wanted to learn the Beethoven piano sonatas, what addition would I buy? There are quite a few available. Um, in the 19th century, um, a lot of really good pianists made editions in which they incorporated their ideas of what Beethoven could sound like. But then there was a, a movement in the mid part of the, or early to mid part of the 20th century of sort of getting back to basics, getting back to the understanding and talking about the, the real essence of the art, which is what we're doing now. Um, and there's a big publishing house in Munich, Henley, um, which uh, capitalized on this idea of creating an ur text. Um, right after World War II, they began publishing works, Beethoven, Schubert, others, Chopin as well, um, that all had in the you know, cover the term ur text. But what does that mean? You know, ur, of course, is the Mesopotamian city, ur text is the original text, but what, what does that really mean? So, um, the, the owner of this farm, Günther Henle, noted correctly that <clears throat> occasionally a composer's autograph score <clears throat> and the first edition, that is the first published edition, differ. So he realized that there could be a situation in which the editor and not the composer decides what to print. But in his so-called Urtext edition, Henley does not point out that an edition is, is no longer Urtext because you're, you can't rely on whether um, you're looking at the first edition, which may have mistakes, or the autograph score, which the composer may have changed later. There's no basis of, of research. There's, no, there's not enough information. Um, so Henley also doesn't point out how any decisions to change things may have been met, made. 
So as a performer, I prefer to know these things. I prefer to draw my own conclusions, which may be different from any editor. Uh, so a responsible edition will point out areas of textual controversy, and there are quite a few of those in the, in the piano sonatas, such as the big controversy about A, the note A versus A sharp in the development section of the first movement of the Hammerklavier, or whether there should be repeat signs in one of the movements of Opus 101. So all these things will be pointed out in, in, a, in a responsible edition. Beethoven um, never fulfilled his desire to see a complete edition of his works before his death. He wrote to, to Breitko von Tertel, and they started gathering material, but they weren't quick enough. Beethoven died at the age of 57. His health <clears throat> was, had been in decline for some time. And upon his death, sadly, um, his sketchbooks, which we'll talk about in another podcast, were largely, or in, in many ways, disseminated. They, pages were taken out. They were sometimes cut into quarters for souvenirs of Beethoven's musical handwriting. Autograph scores have been lost. Um, there may still be some in salt mines in Poland, who knows? Um, but some still exist, and it's wonderful to view those. And when you view those, you're struck by the incredible life of the iconography, the musical iconography of Beethoven. It's so much more um, musically worthy and conveys so much more musical insight than any sterile printed edition. I'm actually on the Library of Congress website as you're talking, Bob, looking at the Opus 109. And I, I recommend all our listeners to just go on to whatever search engine you have and search for this Beethoven Opus 109 Library of Congress. And you can download your own facsimile. And just looking through it, it is an extraordinary 40 folio manuscript. Um, and I mean, it is just bewilderingly complex and so many layers of annotations, and actually incredibly messy. And I think if I were a, a German publisher uh, trying to render this in, in printed, finalised form, I would find that an incredibly difficult task, Bob. It is an incredibly difficult task, and um, the, Opus 109 is one of the neater ones, as it turns out. Right. <laughs> um, but... I'm really glad that um, you're suggesting this, James. And the great, it's one of the best things in Washington, in my opinion. Um, and the great thing is you don't even have to pay taxes to, 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 you know, to, to download it. Um, you can look at um, the very beginning of the second movement. And you can see the designation Prestissima. Going back to the idea of tempo, prestissimo is, an ex, is a superlative of presto. But you can also see that presto was originally there. Presto was written in ink. Beethoven's practice was to go back after he had written out an autograph score and make, you know, check over things, check for, you know, musical typos, as it were, or make any changes in pencil. So the superlative element of the word prestissimo, the isimo part, is added in pencil. You'll never find that in a printed edition. Um, I was asked a number of years ago to prepare a performance edition of the Beethoven works, Beethoven piano sonatas, I should say. So I, you know, I, I consulted all of the research that I had previously done and wrote 
a footnote about this issue because it influences that element of tempo. You know, this, this middle movement of 109 is, is pretty tough. And you could be tempted to play it at a certain speed, which may not be the fastest of the fast. But to do so would be to not give full credit to the musical character of, of that movement. Um, so Beethoven thought about it as presto, and then he changed his mind. And he wanted it published and made available to the, to the future public as prestissimo. Beethoven had a very good sense that his music would outlive him. When he sent the autograph score, which sadly is lost, and maybe one of those in a salt mine in Poland somewhere, um, when he sent the autograph score of the Hammerklavier, Opus 106, the most epic sonata, to his publisher, he, his accompanying note was, here you have a work that will keep the pianist busy 50 years hence. He knew the work would outlive him. It's kept pianists busy far longer than 50 years hence. And he also sent in a, a list of, a, a very long list, of four, at, it was at least four pages of, of corrections after looking at the first um, series of proofs. So mistakes were critical. Mistakes were critical to Beethoven as he made them and as he corrected them. And, you know, he really wanted them corrected. I mean, this seems like a man who's very much got an eye on posterity. And I wonder, how did he regard his, his legacy in musical terms? He knew that, he, that as an artist, he was worthy. Um, he also believed very strongly that artistic endeavours are the, um, in the class of the highest aspirations of human beings. And he compared himself, for example, to one of his brothers. His brother Johann somehow managed to become a landowner. Not a, not, not a given in Vienna in those days. Uh, Beethoven's early upbringing was in a household that today would be labeled as dysfunctional. His father was an alcoholic. He beat Beethoven. That may have contributed to the onset of deafness later in life. Um, they were of desperate means. Beethoven pursued the one area which he felt he could make a difference, and that is obviously music. He, his romantic um, attachments and aspirations were always to women who were on a higher social status than he or who were married, and therefore there were unfulfilled relationships, unattainable relationships, which he recognized from a psychological point of view and kept him focused solely on what he believed he, he was put on earth to do, which is compose, basically. Um, so he had a very good sense of his value and his position and what he was contributing. He... Um, in, in the note to his brother Johann, who became a landowner, the note that Beethoven himself, that Ludwig von Beethoven, wrote back to his brother was in response to a note, this the letter that informed Ludwig that his brother had become a, a, a landowner. Johann wrote, you know, a, a, a somewhat banal letter and signed, signed it, your faithful 
brother, Johan, and underneath in parentheses, in brackets, he put landowner. He had just bought some property. Ludwig wrote back some nice things and signed it, your faithful brother, Ludwig, and underneath put in brackets, put brain owner. <laughs> Excellent. That's the response I'd give a, a, a sort of a braggy brother, I think, as well. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, idea of making sure that the future audiences for Beethoven's works would have the best sources at their disposal to um, view and learn and appreciate and become involved with his artistic creations. That was really central to Beethoven. And it's sort of sad that um, the complete edition supervised by Beethoven to make sure that it was as accurate as possible. It never happened. But on the other hand, it's kept us busy today. Now, so when do we get a fixed canon of Beethoven's work? I mean, obviously not authorised by the man himself, but a sort of critical edition of his works. When does that first appear? Well, Breitkopf und Hertel started putting out um, a, the, the beginnings of a complete edition of Beethoven's works a couple of decades after he died, so mid-19th century. And that continued for quite some time. Um, there are um, other editions that have come out since that use better source material. Um, for me, when I started learning the Beethoven piano sonatas, I used um, an edition prepared by the wonderful theorist Heinrich Schenker, who was really a pioneer in, in Beethoven research and understanding the relationship between the autograph scores and the, and the and first editions and, and looking at the letters and trying to understand what was what to really do some good detective work. So that's the edition from which I learned the piano sonatas uh, published by Universal or Universal Edition in Vienna. And then um, I used that, that influenced me greatly. And, and since then, even more sources have come to light. And um, I use those sources in preparing the edition that I made a couple of years ago. That was fascinating, Bob. Uh, listening to that as a Renaissance scholar, uh, I, it makes me think about the the editing of literary texts as well and how similar how similar the sort of the the methods are but thank you everyone for listening uh, and if you'd like to find out more about the Beethoven 250 festival at the University of Plymouth check out our website www.plymouth.ac.uk and search for the Arts Institute public program you can also follow us on social media with the hashtag Beethoven Fest Plym we are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, we are everywhere. And do make sure to join us for our next episode where we'll be exploring the myth of the authentic pianoforte. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. <laughs>